0: Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Nabila Islam. Nabila, how are you?
1: Good, doing great. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Also joining us today is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. You know, this is uh, hour
2: four of being online in meetings. And then after this, I have two more hours. So
0: it's a blast. Busy day. Um, And we got a full house for you today. Also joining us on the podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you?
3: Hey, doing pretty well. Just happy
1: to be here.
0: So on today's podcast, we are going to start by reflecting on Labor Day and the state of the labor movement in Georgia. We are recording on Tuesday, the day after Labor Day. And I have noticed just in general democratic politics in the last year or so, increasing pressure from progressives on mainstream Democrats to honor the promises that they make to the labor movement in Georgia and across the country. So we're going to talk about the conditions facing workers and what Democrats can do about it. Then for our second topic this week, we are going to dive into elections. There are a couple of stories Going on with the administration of elections that we wanted to react to. One, uh, which is Secretary Raffensberger announcing today that a thousand people double voted in the uh, primary earlier this year. That was a claim from his office and the Secretary of State. We'll evaluate that claim. And we'll also talk about a study that alleges that nearly 200,000 voters were wrongfully purged from the Georgia voter rolls in October of 2019. And then uh, to talk more about elections, we're going to talk about the shifting dynamics in the campaign. In campaign season, we are now eight weeks from Election Day. And one uh, changing dynamic that that we're observing now is candidates, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, are increasing their in-person campaign events. While Democrats have not really gotten out to doing in-person things again, instead they are trying to utilize new digital tools to reach Voters while uh, staying socially distant. And then we'll wrap up today with updates uh, on the two Georgia Senate races, um, including the ongoing slugfest uh, between uh, Republicans Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins in that jungle primary on the Republican side. Uh, But let's start here with the challenges that workers in Georgia are facing um, here. in in recognition of Labor Day that was on Monday. Um, So as as we all know, if you paid any attention to the news uh, in the last few months, it's been a challenging year on many fronts. The pandemic uh, precipitated what was basically a collapse in economic activity early in the spring um, that shot unemployment up to record high numbers, numbers that rivaled the unemployment rates we saw during the Great Depression. Since then, as the economy has opened back up a little bit, some workers have been brought back in, uh, but workers who are continuing to work face the added health risks of being out in public, serving customers during the pandemic and putting themselves at risk of catching COVID-19. And workers who have not been brought back to work Uh, They have had problems claiming unemployment insurance benefits from the state government, which says that it has been overwhelmed by uh, this economic crisis and unemployment crisis that they have had to try to administer. Nabila, let's start with you. And can you start by just giving us your reflections on the challenges that workers in Georgia are facing today and and what democrats should be doing about those challenges
1: so this is a very personal issue to me um when the pandemic first hit uh, my mother was furloughed like that very first week that people were were being uh fired furloughed from their jobs and we didn't know whether or not she would have a job later on Uh, she was brought back to work when brian kemp thought it was safe to bring uh to allow workers to go back to their jobs and it was a scary time and it still is so my mom is um one of the millions of people in this state that can't work from home she works at a at a uh, at a uh at a factory where she helps um do quality assurance on dvds and you can't do that work from home so she she has to go into a factory every day and putting her health at risk like so many hourly workers across the state and so you know, Georgia is the number one place to do business and yet uh, we're the number one place for income inequality. It's, it's so tiring because the working class in the state were, are treated, they're, they're, they're said to be essential yet we treat them as disposable. Um, look no further than Senate Bill uh, 359 that makes it almost impossible for workers to seek recourse if they get sick on the job. So politicians yet again underneath the gold dome are protecting employers over workers. You know, who's going to protect folks like my mother, my, uh, folks like my uncle who works at Walmart, so many hourly workers across the state. And I know at the federal level, uh, you know, we have to uh, pass some type of uh, universal basic income. Now that the $600 unemployment uh, benefit has ended at the end of July, um, people uh, across the country, including Georgia, are, um, are really feeling it, especially um, not, they're not being able to pay for rent. Uh, We need a moratorium in this state so that people aren't evicted. I mean, what kind of society are we going to be or are we if we let our neighbors be homeless during a pandemic? So we absolutely we absolutely need to do more.
0: Megan, what do you make of this split dynamic here? I mean, it was just a, a week or two ago when Governor Kemp, you know, touted again that Georgia got yet another number one rating as the state to do business. There was yet another magazine that rated us number 1 but you know as nabila said the being the number 1 state to do business is not reflective of good conditions facing workers what do you make of that you know that break there between the policies republicans are touting and and the reality for workers on the ground well
3: i've been talking about this for i can't tell you how long since i've been on this podcast uh you know constantly bringing up yeah and Kemp claims that Georgia is the number one state to do business or a great state to do business or Georgia is great for business or, you know, all the variations that we've ever heard on that. And I think that it, these, these policies just prove that Georgia's only the number one state to do business when it comes to lining the pockets of people who are already benefiting from Georgia business. It is not a good state to do business for employees. It is not a good state to do business for people that have progressive values. It is not a good state to do business for anyone that cares about the well-being of anyone other than the top percentage here who are making a lot of money off of Georgia being so good for business. I, I, I mean, I can't, I can't really elaborate on it much more than Nabila already has. She hit the nail on the head with everything that she spoke about. But I do think that it's talking about it now in times of COVID, knowing what employees are going through. It's just a slap in the face to, you know, the, the everyman, everyone other than the kimps and the, the people of the world who are already making a lot of money.
0: Luke, I don't think anyone would have expected these Republicans to roll out a bunch of reforms that make it easier for unions to form, make it easier for workers to collectively bargain. But the one place where if they were just running government efficiently and well, the one place where they could have supported workers, you know, primarily workers with lower incomes who lost their jobs because of the pandemic would have been to run an efficient and effective unemployment insurance system whereby people could collect benefits in a timely manner and have the, the funds that they need to get them through tough times. But we've seen reports of, of legislators continuously sending spreadsheets of names of people who to the labor department, people who are having problems claiming unemployment benefits. You know, I know people personally who've had problems with the the challenge of claiming a partial benefit when their employee when their employer partially furloughed them. What do you make of the failure of the labor department to, you know, do a better job in supporting workers in in such a difficult time?
2: I, I make that when you have a program that the current administration does not believe should exist because most republicans really don't believe that unemployment insurance is a smart or good program because their belief is that if you give people money when they are in these transitiontory hard times you're going to make them lazy and you're going to make them not be motivated for looking for a job because Gigging free money is fun and nice and that that's what people will enjoy and then they only start looking for a job when unemployment insurance will run out and so if that is what your idea of what this program does in average and normal times that will not be a program where you will be really focused and dedicated your time as governor or any legislator to making sure that the staff is Good and qualified at the Labor Department that they have the resources they need to handle it in normal times. And I mean, I I did not read every single emergency package that Georgia considered, uh, or you know, calls from uh, every representative. But I really did not hear anyone saying, you know, what we should really do in this COVID crisis: get better people, the Department of Labor, to process these claims because that's good governance. And those are things that are not the priority of this Republican administration. They are far more. Focused on getting people back to work and in their minds not offering people unemployment benefits is going to uh, push them towards getting a job again. So, I mean, really, I don't think this is something they're worried about because in their ideology and their worldview, if people aren't getting unemployment benefits that they're entitled to, the government is saving money and that person is being pushed towards getting a job faster. So th- uh, this is not a crisis to them. This is a unintended benefit is what I would imagine they're thinking if you made them aware of this because they probably don't know and don't care.
3: Well, and to elaborate a little bit on what Luke said, you know, the idea that no one's talked about getting better people in the Department of Labor to process these things. Well, in fact, I've also heard of people blaming the inability to get unemployment. People on the Republican side, too, saying, oh, well, the Labor Department is so overworked and, you know, basically blaming on blaming it on the department and how it works. And, you know, to Luke's point of, well, they haven't seen it fit to improve it, but they've definitely seen it fit to blame it on the department so that way they can, you know, kind of shirk some of the blame. Um, It's quite an interesting juxtaposition, in my opinion.
0: So Nabila, Democrats have been kind of inconsistent friends of labor at times. You know, I tried to do kind of a brief scan to get kind of an overview of where Georgia Democrats have stood on labor issues in recent years. One place that I looked was the the platform of Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor. She, you know, in her campaign for governor and in her time as minority leader of the Democrats in the House, she has highlighted some issues that are really important to labor. She, as a part of her gubernatorial platform, wanted to hire more staffers at the Department of Labor to pursue Wage theft, and to protect workers who are not being paid what they're owed, um, she also supported a fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage. And on the subject of of adding staffing to the Department of Labor, the the current group of House Democrats, led by Minority Leader Bob Trammell, they have called for Governor Kemp and the legislature to to staff up that agency, as well as some other protections for people with lower incomes, you know, including a sixty day moratorium. On evictions. But one issue that hangs out there is uh, this issue of right to work. And southern states, in particular, have these issues that make it harder for employees to collectively bargain with their employers. Stacey Abrams, as far as I could tell, did not make a big deal of getting rid of right to work in Georgia. And the group that we sometimes look to as a proxy for future democratic control in Georgia is the takeover of, by legislative Democrats in Virginia, another sort of conservative, business friendly state no matter who's in charge. Um, and the Democrats there declined to get rid of, of right to work in that state. So do you think that Democrats are adequately supporting labor issues in Georgia? And if not, how do we get them? Into a place that they are being good allies of labor.
1: Look, I think we can definitely um, be friendlier to workers. Um, I I don't see why Democrats should not wholeheartedly support dismantling uh, right to work laws. Um, I I think that you know what Minority Bob Trammell has done uh, with requesting more staffing at the Labor Department and. Asking for a 60-day moratorium. I mean, these are these are important things that we need to uh, make sure happens. But I think, in addition to that, uh, the Democrats that are in positions of power need to stand up for workers because if they don't, then no one will. And I I think that us as constituents uh, need to make sure that they understand uh, the issues that we're facing on a that workers are facing on a day-to-day basis. And look, and if they aren't then I I believe that they should be fired from their jobs. And so that's why we have elections every two years. And if you're not adequately representing uh, the labor force, workers, the backbone of uh, the economy in this country, then I I think that someone better should replace you that will speak truth to power and work harder for working families.
0: Any other thoughts from you, Luke or Megan, on Democrats' relationship with labor and and whether or not whether or not we should be paying attention to it closer as we analyze campaigns or and whether or not um, we need to see, you know, more aggressive policy proposals from Democratic campaigns when it comes to supporting workers.
2: I, I think what we are seeing here is the success of Republican attacks on labor. Like the reason why Democrats in Georgia aren't more focused on labor is because, there are very few unions and very few union members in the state of Georgia, and I mean, I, I am a uh, practitioner and rigor of you know real politic, and it's just like if unions are not as powerful as they are in northeastern states or as they historically have been, you know, in like the nineteen you know thirties or forties or even the nineteen eighties, then it's just not going to be a top of mind. That being said, I think for georgia democrats to be successful in the long term it is a project they need to spend more time on and focus on and rejuvenating uh labor in in the state because there are plenty of opportunities to do that and there would be benefits both for the democratic party itself but also for georgians and so i think that is uh, something that is currently being underestimated that should not be
3: i agree i think that something else that Could be noted is if you want to fire up a base that is maybe not super enthused about voting for Democrats, check out the people who are historically Democrats because they are union workers. Um, That describes a lot of my family back in Louisiana, and a lot of them have voted Republican for a number of years because the Democratic Party, uh, while historically very union friendly, is. Lately, not as union friendly as it used to be, and it's causing some ideas to and some voters to wander. And I think that if the Democratic Party really put some emphasis and some work on unions again, that uh, we'd see some better voter turnout from that demographic.
1: Megan, I agree with you. I feel like too oftentimes, uh, Democrats will run run away from themselves. And uh, I don't know if it's because of some form of Stockholm syndrome of living in red states, but... Um, instead of doubling down on our values, we water them down. Um, and so I, I think that if we were um, a party that, you know, was much stronger on, you know, workers being able to collectively bargain for healthcare and better wages, we would see a more, um, uh, the enthusiasm gap shrink. We would see more people be enthusiastic about voting and, uh, and being enthusiastic about these candidates. Exactly.
0: Well, and I think the other thing, too, is this, as I interpreted from progressive activists, this is often described as kind of the missing piece of the puzzle for Democrats in trying to galvanize working class voters of, you know, of any race or background and trying to create sort of a united working class front in their electorates. You know, but I've observed that when Democratic officials are in charge at the city level, you know, particularly like in the city of Atlanta, that business interests often still come first. And it was interesting, you know, Stacey Abrams very often touted herself as having an excellent rating from the Georgia Chamber of Commerce along with her accolades from Georgia labor unions. And I think for some progressives, her her friendliness and her closeness to the Chamber of Commerce is not ideal um, because, you know, often as, as progressive activists describe it, these, these issues are in conflict with each other, whether, you know, providing the needed protections for workers, making sure that they get their fair share of profits, making sure they are protected in the workplace and get protections like healthcare coverage and things like that. Those come at the expense of of profits of corporations and, you know, corporations don't want to see their profits handed over that way. And so I think that's sort of a, you know, if we get to a point where in this state Democrats are fighting with Democrats for power, I would envision that being a, a fault line within the party uh, between sort of the pro-corporate Democrats and and ones who would put a stronger voice forward for labor. Um, so let's move on here to our second topic for today. And there's a couple of stories in elections that I wanted to give you all the opportunity to react to, and then we'll talk a little more generally about the Status of the Senate races and and how people are approaching the last eight weeks of campaign season here. First, these stories to react to this. This was a big headline in in G P B and the A J C today. Uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced that his office is investigating how a thousand people voted twice in the primary earlier this year. Um, most of these people, the Secretary of State says, uh, voted once in absentee and then once in person. Um, Brad Raffensperger today put the blame for that on voters. He said, a double voter knows exactly what they're doing, diluting the votes of each and every voter that follows the law. Those that make the choice to game the system are breaking the law. And he, you know, I think clearly leaned into a headline that Republicans who are obsessed with voter fraud liked. Um, At the same time, uh, we don't have a ton of details on on this investigation. At this point, no charges have been pressed against people who voted twice. And so Luke, let's start with you just to your reaction to this claim from the Secretary of State's office. Do you think that it's credible? And if it is credible, what else do listeners need to know about the possibility that 1000 people double voted in the primary?
2: Well, Kyle, I'm I'm really happy you started with me because I have a lot of thoughts on this. the The first thing <laughs> I knew you would. We'll see. Yeah, the first thing I will say is there, there's one part of this that I think is undeniably false about what Raffensperger is saying, and that is the a double voter knows exactly what they are doing. Um, I I guarantee you. Let's assume. Let's just start with the assumption that that a thousand voter number is correct. Uh, I have you know family members who work as poll uh, poll workers god bless them and they told me that I would be amazed how many people came by both uh, as early voters and as people voting on election day confused about this or not even if they weren't confused just like they had gotten absentee ballot they had requested it and they're just like you know what I want to vote in person I vote in person every year I've been voting for 40 years and I want to vote in person and so they show up and they do it and so I guarantee you. Let's assume that a thousand number is right. Some of those are just people who were confused. The other right? reason why I know some of it was people who were confused is, oh, I don't know. There was a global pandemic, and we canceled and consolidating election, and so I, I guarantee you, there was someone who was like, "Well, I got this absentee ballot and sent it in, and wait, now there's another election." You know, like I, I'm just, I just know that there was someone who did that because I mean the. The time period between, like, the absentee ballots going out and for the the May election that became the June election was very wide. I mean, I voted really, really early in that election, and I I just know that there are some people that got confused. Like, so that's the place I would start in that I, I... You know, I always approach Republican secretary of states in the state of Georgia with skepticism, but like I could believe that a thousand number is real, but I cannot believe that there were a thousand people who did it on purpose, that they were like trying to vote twice and and were trying to be uh, wrong. The other thing I find like really fascinating about this is the part of the story where uh, there's the one guy from Long County who uh, voted on purpose in. Sorry, voting in person twice on purpose um, because he knew the system would let him do that. It's like, oh, who who created this system? Who bought this system? Who It tra- was supposed to train people on this system. Brad Raffensperger, that's, that's who, that's like who advocated for this system. It's who, you know, trained people on this system. So if anything, what Brad Raffensperger is really saying is I'm very bad at my job and let this happen a thousand times. Like that, that is what the takeaway should actually be from this, even if that is a real thing. And and one thing I appreciate it that the AJC um, did point out is that uh, 150,000 people who requested absentee ballots ended up showing up in person and voting. And so if anything, that just proves what my point was saying in in the sense that, like, there's a bunch of people who got absentee ballots and then wanted to vote in person anyway. And so I I just am very skeptical that there was some cabal of a thousand people who were trying to influence the election uh, that way, even if that many people did technically double vote.
3: I 100% agree with you, Luke. And then the other scenario that I would bring to the table is that there were a lot of concerns raised with the ways that you return the absentee ballots. Um, And so I know personally I ended up not returning one absentee ballot because I spoiled it. And then in another election recently, I didn't return that one because I was worried that everything that was going on with the mail and then also the fact that I was hearing that drop boxes were filling up, that I wouldn't actually be able to get that ballot counted because it would just never make it in time. Um, As well as I picked up mail for a friend who was out of town who had requested an absentee ballot, and a week after the election occurred, that absentee ballot then showed up. So that's just proof that the mail was running super slowly, which we all know that that's an issue in and of itself. And so I wonder if something that might have happened was somebody returned their absentee ballot, realized that they were pushing the deadline, and said, oh, well, if it counted my absentee ballot, then surely they won't allow me to vote in person because they don't understand how the system works because it's ultimately a black box to those who don't pay a ton of attention to all of these goings on. Um, And so they showed up thinking that, well, they'll just tell me that it already counted if... It was counted, and since they didn't, then oh, I guess I get to vote.
2: Yeah, I, I cannot agree stronger with Megan on that. Like, I I know that is how people think because again, like people who I know who are poll workers, like tell me so many stories of just like voters being confused about things, and so as if voters like. Cannot get the idea that um, if you vote in a Republican primary, you can't change parties in a runoff or that you can't vote for Democrat candidates in a Republican primary. Like if people are having trouble with that, the scenario Megan just laid out, I guarantee you happen. Now, the one thing I, I do want to say, is there someone out there who like thought they could take advantage of the situation and tried to vote twice. Yeah, like I'm going to guess that they actually investigate these 1,000 people. They will find a bad actor in it. I just cannot imagine that that's more than like two or three people out of this potential a thousand people. Whereas there's just so many scenarios and honestly like easier explanations for people, um, to, to do this because, and the reason I am fairly confident in this is like voter frog is not like a hard thing to look at and like try to figure out if it's happening or not. There have been a plethora of studies on this and, the, it's just consistently not been something that people do because when you do when like if you do it and you get caught the um the penalty is pretty bad i mean it, you know it, it's very very harsh and uh you know, there's a reason why this guy who, you know, decided he was going to test the system immediately turned himself into the sheriff and told them <laughs> that they did it after he had done it, because like he would get in serious trouble point. if he got caught. So I just don't think a lot of people are like, you know, this point zero zero one chance I'm going to change this election by voting twice is like worth it.
1: Megan and Luke, you both are uh, giving me PTSD um, for my election day. Um, so, um, like, I mean, let's be honest. It, it was all of it. The whole thing was, frankly, a, a shit show. So, I mean, to from uh, the the folks that were mailing out the mail-in ballot requests or the the mail-in ballots. If you didn't have that one piece of white uh, white piece of paper, um, y- your ballot wouldn't count. And then I saw in the AGC, it's like, oh, well, now that's been Uh, you don't you no longer have to do that for your ballot to count um and it was i think it also uh, a lot of poll workers and voters both uh were just kind of confused about everything um it was confusing and i also i also think that like both of you said mail was pretty slow people were afraid that their ballot wasn't gonna be counted and so they were um uh, they went in person to go vote and whoever the poll worker was because you can I think the 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 process is that you can um, ask for your ballot not to be counted. Is is that correct? That's
2: correct. Yeah, I I believe you have to have it on you and like give it to them. You don't actually. Okay. Yep.
1: So I mean, like, look, I think there are probably some discrepancies and honest mistakes were made, but this isn't real voter fraud. Uh, Voter fraud is the rate of voter fraud in this country is point zero 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 six percent. So. The Raffensberger is just playing politics and, you know, trying to give Donald Trump a headline so he can uh, disqualify this election when he loses.
0: I mean, even the 1000 number, if you take that at face value, that doesn't amount to a tenth of a percent of all of the absentee ballot votes that were cast. So, I mean, it's still and, and the other interesting thing is they these votes alleged these double votes allegedly took place across almost 100 different counties in the state. So it's not clear that in any instances, it was enough to overturn even the closest elections that the state saw in the primary. So I think
3: they even straight up said it didn't in one article.
0: Yeah, I think I think that that's right. I, I got I got I got a little bit lost in a in a probate judge election in Long County where this guy did claim to vote. Or did did purposefully say that he voted twice? Um, there was some probate judge election decided by like nine votes or something. So maybe they'll yeah, find something the, there. But the
2: other thing I want to hit, hit on here, just because we haven't like explicitly said this, and I, I hint to it at my reaction, it, it it's a frustrating thing for me that the Republicans in government in Georgia seem to forget that they are in government. I mean, it's very <laughs> Trumping in the sense that they are like commentators on what's happening in government rather than actors with any agency. Because I mean, this is exactly the same thing as like days before the election last time where Brian Kemp's secretary of state office said Democrats are hacking the secretary of state's office when in fact it was the federal government doing something they agreed to do uh, to test the firewall of the secretary of state's office. And it just like Brad Raffensperger is an actor here. He is the secretary of state. He helps to set up these systems and he has to do things to ensure this doesn't happen in the future because i mean i have been part of campaigns that have been decided by 42 votes i mean that's a very very small amount but like I, i i believe that the vote should be counted and everyone's voice should be heard and i believe that very strongly uh and i i don't like the fact that we have these problems and like i think raffensperger Needs to get to the bottom of it, but what I am so frustrated about uh, with Republicans in the state is that they always rush to conclusions about like what people were doing and why they did it, and they go for these like flashy headlines and they get some stories about it and they piss off the you know co-hosts and the moderators of Peach Pod, and we talk about it for an episode, and then they don't do anything about it. Like I'm sure Brag Raffensperger is going to find someone that they can charge with, you know, something potentially, but like what, what changes to the process or to the administration or to the machines? Is he going to do to prevent this from happening again? Because, it, you know, if it's true, again, assuming it's true, because th- with these guys, I don't even give them that uh, for free very often. But assuming it is like there was obviously some administrative failure that needs to be rectified. And I would much rather him come out and say, hey, we're looking into this. This seems this is a problem. And we'll get back to you when we know what's going on, because I guarantee you he doesn't know what happened in each of those 1,000 cases right now because it would have taken time to find them. And I really doubt in this time of COVID that the Secretary of State's office has contact tracers for double votes going out there and interviewing all these people and being like, hey, why'd you commit this felony?
0: I think to be fair, though, to Secretary of State Raffensberger, he did say at this press conference that part of the investigation was going to be to look into whether local elections officials followed the proper procedures in stopping people from voting twice. Um,
2: uh, Kyle, I'm going to go ahead and say that they didn't, since, I, as I will mention every time I can, that there was one precinct in, I think, Fulton County that delayed everything for an hour because they could not turn the card the right way. They had the card upside down and it took them an hour to figure that out. So let me go ahead and say there's some county poor county administrator who doesn't know how to u- use their email that didn't look up someone and let someone double vote. Like that happened multiple times.
3: Yep. And also, as usual, it's not Raffensburger's fault. It's the fault of the county or the precinct or someone else. It's always someone else's fault.
0: Well, I will say, I mean, I think my prediction about What comes up today is that Republicans got the headline they wanted in the AJC that a thousand people double voted, and that feeds their, you know, their political necessity. But the ultimate outcome of any sort of like investigation or anything official related to this is likely to be, uh, you know, either reforming processes or or punishing local elections officials for, for screwing up the process here. Uh, one more election story to react to, and then and then we'll open it up to a general conversation about the Senate race and, and how people are going to campaign this fall. Um, the Georgia ACLU recently released a study which claims that nearly 200,000 people were wrongfully purged from the voter rolls in October of 2019. Um, this study uses this method that they this study uses this advanced address verification data that they claim is more accurate and is used by commercial clients like eBay or Home Depot or Google. And they say that the state was relying on this inaccurate data uh, coming from the National Change of Address Database, which is the database run by the U.S. Postal Service. It is the database that feeds in Information to the Secretary of State's office and local elections officials when they begin a purge of somebody's voter registration from the voter rolls based on the assumption that that person has moved away from their prior address so their voter registration is not valid if they've left their county or left the state or in some instances this, this process also has to do with cleaning up voter rolls when, when people die. I'll just open this up to to general reactions from y'all. This number also also was a big headline in the AJC. Um, what are your reactions to this study? Do you think that this number is credible? And and if it is, does it signify real serious problems with the way voter rolls are maintained in Georgia?
1: I think it made headlines because uh, 200,000 people out of the 300 and what, 15,000 people that were removed is an over 60% error rate. I mean, that's just negligence. Um, I, y- you have one job. <laughs> and and they do it under the guise of uh, voter maintenance. And what it really is, is voter suppression. And uh, they just go about it in a complex way to hide it. And it's so, it, it disenfranchises disenfranchises the voter. Um, as for the quality of this study, it seems like the person that the the organization that does that did this study has been doing it since 2003 in many states uh, when it comes to voting purges. And so, um, you know, I'd love to see other studies as well, but I, I trust the ACLU.
2: Yeah, I would I would second that these numbers look right, kind of for the same reason that the a thousand number looks wrong for people who willfully and purposely uh, committed voter fraud, because there have been plenty of court cases, including some that I have read in full, uh, that have went to the Supreme Court that have uh, covered uh, you know voter purges in other states like Ohio and Wisconsin, and you know differences in population, obviously different, some differences in method from the state governments So how they conducted purges, but as far as like the raw number of people and the percentage of vote, registered voters, uh, purged, I mean, this seems right. Uh, as far as the, the, you know, uh, the amount of people purged and as, as far as the, um, database for, uh, finding people's move of addresses. I'm still getting mail that for some reason has my old address on it sometimes, uh, you know, shipped to me from the U.S. Post Office. So, uh, you know, they, they work hard and they do their job the best they can. But so- sometimes people's databases aren't nearly as good as they think they are. Um, so I, I, I definitely think there's some errors in that in that database and that people really should not be removed from lists unless there's really good evidence that they uh, have moved from that address and aren't voting. And, and you know, I mentioned this uh, a lot when we talk about purging in, in Georgia. I have a friend who's been in D.C. since I think like, oh, maybe 2014, 2015, and he's still on the list here. So whatever they're doing is not working because he hasn't voted here for almost half a decade and he's still on the list. Whereas when I literally had just voted in a runoff election. So that makes me a super voter. I got sent one of the purge mailers. So I I don't know what they are basing their mailing and purging off of, but whatever it is, it's, it's not working very well.
3: It's definitely not working. And here's how I know this firsthand, 100%, not from a voter perspective, but from a, like this database doesn't work perspective. So, um, I moved to Georgia a few years ago. Um, and With me, moved all of my bank accounts. You know, all the addresses changed. Well, one of my bank accounts from college has my mom as a signer. My mom started getting mail in Georgia. My mom has never lived in Georgia. She's never lived outside of Louisiana, just to make that abundantly clear. When I changed the address on the bank account to start sending things to my new address rather than the one where I first rented when I moved here, my mom continued to get mail at the old address. So I had to file a separate, um, you know, UPS, USPS, you know, moving registration for her name for that address to get the mail to go back to Louisiana. And quite frankly, I don't think that actually worked because now the mail's just kind of going nowhere as I understand it, because it's apparently going out. Cause I'm getting notifications through the USPS tracking, but it's never actually making it to Louisiana. So if that's how this is working, it's just something as simple as like moving and move in a bank, changing an address, then there is no way they should be using that because according to that, if they were using that, my mom who has never lived outside of Louisiana has lived in Sandy Springs and Atlanta. What the hell?
0: All right. Well, let's wrap today's show uh, with a discussion of of Senate campaigns and the campaign environment that uh, that candidates are going to be facing this fall. Uh, Greg Bluestein had an excellent piece in the AJC over the weekend describing Republicans' move towards in-person campaign events and Republicans' touting of their door-knocking operation, not only in Georgia but in other swing states. They recently announced that they believe they've made over a million contacts in the state of Florida, an important swing state in the November presidential election. While at the same time, Democrats have resisted going back to in-person campaigning and resisted deploying field programs that would knock on doors, including in admission uh, by Democrats in Michigan, that they are not knocking any doors at all right now. Um, Thinking about you know, the the electoral environment that we're going to have here in Georgia and all of the work that Democrats put into an excellent field operation that almost elected Stacey Abrams to be governor of Georgia in 2018. What are y'all's thoughts on whether or not this asymmetry between Republicans doing in-person stuff and Democrats not, whether or not that's going to be costly for Democrats in the fall? Luke, what do you think?
2: I think this is something that every campaign in Georgia is is dealing with. I'm working with several campaigns and we're all talking about how to deal with this asymmetry because you know at the end at the end of the day politics is war, right? Like you are fighting a battle for your values and your beliefs and the policies that you want. And it's really hard for me as someone who uh compares politics to war uh to see my my you know the opposing team out there doing things that I know as someone who's researched politics for a really long time, like door to door canvassing face to face conversation is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful tool in politics. And so to like seed that to the opposing side and to not do it yourself is very, very hard. And we've had very difficult conversations on, you know, campaigns talking about how to handle, uh, potentially canvassing in this time and trying to to find uh workarounds and similar similar things or and it's just it's a difficult conversation and so uh on, on that you know front, I've been uh proud with how hard people are thinking about this on the Democratic side and I hope that our Republican counterparts are taking people's safety into account and in, and doing that though we have many examples of them not uh taking people's safety into account not just with the president and how he's conducted, but also uh, Doug Collins and other uh, candidates hosting events without social distancing or masks et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I, I think it is that framing that makes this so difficult for, for me in this conversation is how to accomplish the goal of, you know, organizing people and getting people involved in the process when you can't Use one of the most effective tools and and to get off of my like campaigns as war uh you know footing for a second and the the other part of politics that I really love and love about campaigns in particular is its ability to reach out to a community and like reach people who politics usually doesn't reach and have conversations with them that wouldn't happen unless that campaign sent someone to their door to knock on their door, to ask them like what they care about, what issues are important to them and like highlight to them that their vote matters. And there's just a lot of people around the country and in, in Georgia, especially who really desperately need to be part of the process and feel like that politics is not working for them and that the people that get elected aren't working for them. And they're losing that contact. They're losing that ability to put a name and face to a campaign and movement. And I think that is a, a real, real loss and something that campaigns and electeds need to, to take in consideration. Now I'm not saying everyone should go start canvassing willy-nilly, but um trying to think about ways to reach out to those communities and to involve them even in these times, I I think is, is critical for not only for like Democrats to win in office, but to, you know, have a bigger community. Um, so that, that's something I've, I've admit, I've lost some sleep over trying to figure out.
0: Nabila, your campaign experience, kind of the flip side of this from having the ability to do in-person events before the pandemic to all of that kind of grounding to a halt in the spring. What, Challenges do you think Democratic campaigns are facing regarding this, and and how meaningful do you think it'll be for results in the fall?
1: So my campaign was a real grassroots campaign, and uh, a significant part of our budget was field because, as Luke said, uh, the number one uh, method of contact is face to face. It's knocking on a voter's door and having a conversation with them. And so when we weren't able to do that, I or we actually decided early March uh, that it was no longer a safe thing for our community or my volunteers to go out knocking on doors. Uh, And then we, you know, quickly moved to a all digital campaign. And it was a little hard in the beginning because it was all very new. I know right now we're gotten into the groove of our Zoom events and uh, phone banking and uh, texting people. Uh, I think that Look, I think Democrat Democratic voters are empathetic. Uh, They recognize that 6000 people in this state have died because of covid 19 uh, that we're not willing to sacrifice grandma for a W. And so um, while Republicans are going door to door um, and, and as Luke said, there's been many instances where they're not being safe. I mean, frankly, it's it's look at the people that are dying from COVID. It's it's mainly uh, it's disproportionately working people. It's black and brown people. Um, these aren't uh, GOP voters. And so uh, maybe that's a very morbid way to look at it, but I really think that they don't care because it's not, those aren't the communities that they're targeting. Um, and I think that w- our messaging is, going, is is a lot better that's resonating, that's hitting harder. It's like, look, look at all these people that have lost jobs. Look at all these people that are dying and we're being left behind by the Trump administration. Um, people recognize that. and I think people are pissed off and angry and have lost loved ones and they're going to show up and vote.
0: Luke, I know we're going to lose you here in a second. So I wanted to give you the opportunity for any final thoughts before you go. And and Megan and Nabila, if you have a few minutes, we'll we'll hang out for a few more minutes and talk Senate races. But Luke?
2: Yeah, the last thing I, I would say on this is, I I agree with what Nabila was just saying. I think Democrats' position on COVID is very, very is going to be key to their victory, right? Like if if I if you told me like Ossoff won, if you told me Biden won, told me some of the candidates I'm working with won, like what I would know for sure is that like our response to COVID is part of the reason why we won. And so I really don't think as, as important as in-person communication is for both the tactical reasons, but also the, you know, higher civic engagement reasons and politics. I think we really have to be on the side of doing what's going to keep people safe and doing what is, is the appropriate thing in the very unique time of a global pandemic. That being said... We can't ignore those voters that we otherwise only would have reached at their doors. And we have to find ways to bring the campaign to them and bring the conversation to them so that at the very least, if we're not able to engage in a conversation with them and talk to them, they at least see that someone is fighting for them and someone you know, cares about them. And so, you know, like maybe just do lit drops, you know, instead of uh knocking on the door and trying to talk to someone, just drop drop a flyer off at someone's door that lets them know that, you know, someone was there and someone sees them and knows that they matter. And I, I think um finding those things to do, you know, finding ways to do something sa- safely is gonna be really important. And making sure that when we uh come out of this period that we if we've won That we have, we do a good job in showing people that they were not wrong to put their faith in us and that we're going to deliver both the, you know, big things of dealing with the pandemic, but also smaller things that um, matter in people's lives. So I will, I will leave y'all with that and go to a meeting in which I try to deliver on the things I just talked about. So (laughs) goodbye. Thank you. Thank thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining Luke. Um, so, oh wait, Megan, did you get a chance to? No.
3: I want to go ahead and talk about something. So I think, you know, what Luke brought up is super important, you know, finding other ways to reach people rather than going straight to their door or maybe doing lit drops and things like that. I think one of the things that is really missing from this is the technology component, which will not surprise our listeners at all, given that I am the, the more techie of most of us on the podcast, I would say. The things that have been really bugging me about the campaigning that I'm seeing is that every time I ask someone if they're text banking, their first and only reaction is, no, it's too expensive. When I know for sure that probably half the lit that they print is not only not getting recycled, but it's also landing directly in the trash before most people read it. So I feel like some of the money for lit drops could be sent over to more tech-related items such as text banking. Um, And text banking, I find I've had really good reactions from people. You know, of course, you get the people who are going to curse you out, but you get that when you do phone banking as well. You get the people who say unsubscribe almost immediately. Again, you get that with phone banking as well. But with texting, it's a little bit less invasive because you don't have to hurry up and pick it up. It's not going to ring, you know, four or five times before it finally rolls over to voicemail or whatever. Um, And so I find it can be a little bit less invasive as well as it gets a younger demographic that does not pick up the phone and also probably won't come to the door if you knock. Um, The other thing is that there are so many platforms out there to reach demographics that we're not currently reaching. We know we have a problem with turning out the young vote. I know a bunch of gamers who basically sit on Twitch all day or do other things like that where they're in front of technology all day and no one is tapping that. And it is so easy if you're going to do Facebook Live to use, which a lot of candidates are, to use other technologies to add to that and go live, not just on Facebook, but also on Twitch or also on YouTube or also on Vimeo or also on, you know. X whatever platform that is untapped. And you can do all of that at once. So I think that really what we need to be using is technology. We need to be embracing it. I see Joe Biden's campaign attempting to do that with the app, but the app is just so clunky that it's yet another point of frustration for me where it's a missed opportunity for where we could be using tech to get in front of voters, especially during COVID.
0: Well, let's close here with a quick uh, some quick thoughts on where uh, Georgia's two U.S. Senate races stand, and I think to just sort of lay out the battle lines here. On the Republican side, uh, to remind listeners, we have the, we have the Purdue seat and the Leffler seat. Um, these are commonly referred to as Senate race number one and Senate race number two. I always confuse which one is one and which one is two, so we're going to stick with Purdue and Leffler seats. In the Purdue seat you know, David Perdue, we are past the primary. So David Perdue's focus is now on the general election and on John Ossoff, his Democratic opponent. And it has been notable to me that David Perdue, who during the first about three or so years of of Trump's term, was one of Trump's premier allies in the U.S. Senate, he has increasingly shown signs of distancing himself from President Trump, Uh, David Perdue did not speak at the RNC. Um, He has produced ads that he's released in recent weeks that do not mention the president at all, including an ad that was released uh, today on on Tuesday morning, where Perdue touts his work to get a raise for veterans, um, while at the same time not acknowledging the president at all. And if you paid attention to the news, you've probably seen that the president is embroiled in this controversy over his remarks disparaging veterans when he was asked to go visit a veteran's cemetery in France. And it was notable to me that that ad, Purdue decided to drop that ad today. You know, he has also been out front, or one of the issues that David Purdue has been out front on that has signaled a willingness to broaden his own coalition is trying to find funding for HBCUs, a plan that. John Ossoff felt the need to put up his own ideas on by releasing his by releasing a, a comprehensive proposal to fund and support HBCUs in our state. Just general reflections from from either of you on where this Senate race stands. Um, you know, this is one where we're Democrat and Republican all the way to November now. Um, thoughts on on the way Purdue is positioning himself or or sort of some of the lack of visibility we've seen on Ossoff's part? What do y'all think about the status of that race?
1: Look, I think Trump is an asset when you're in a Republican primary, and then he becomes a liability in a general election, especially since Georgia is not a deep red state. Um, We have the potential to actually flip blue this cycle. So I think uh, Purdue is trying to cautiously, uh, you know, stay away from Trump's Uh, rhetoric around, I mean, what he recently said about uh, veterans, about them being losers. Um, I I think that I'm waiting to see, you know, they say that voters don't pay attention until really the month before Election Day. So I'm really hoping to see more of uh, energy coming from our uh, Democratic candidates uh, on the Senate side. And so I, I, I'm optimistic that we'll see more, but I, I, I still haven't seen that excitement yet that really gets people uh, motivated about turning out to vote at the uh, for candidates at the federal level.
0: Yeah, Nabila, I think the thing that I've noticed, you know, it was kind of difficult for me to come up with an update on Asaf to talk about. I mean, he did release this HBCU funding plan and I have noticed, you know, online that he is doing digital events. He has digital ads out there. He's on Zooms and things, but there just isn't a lot of drama to this race yet. There isn't a lot of like combat back and forth between Purdue and Ossoff in a way that really grabs headlines. And, you know, maybe that's because of the thing that I'm literally about to do, changing the subject to the Collins-Leffler race. It just feels like that race is commanding more attention from people at that point, at this point, primarily because Collins and Leffler are so engaged with each other in sort of like high-profile combat. This week, House Speaker David Ralston endorsed Doug Collins formally, and that sort of opened the way for other Republican colleagues of his in the legislature to also endorse Doug Collins over Kelly Loeffler, including a couple of people who flipped their endorsement from Kelly Loeffler to Doug Collins and citing that partially citing the tone that has been taken by the Loeffler campaign in attacking David Ralston over this endorsement. You also see them holding in-person events, events that seem dangerously crowded given the pandemic that we're in, and attacking each other constantly over each other's relationship with Stacey Abrams and who is or isn't the true conservative in that race. The other dynamic, though, that I think that creates, you know, given all of the focus on Collins and Leffler, is that it also seems difficult for Raphael Warnock to gain a foothold, gain any sort of attention in that race. I mean, the only real headline that we've seen, he had, you know, there was a great long profile of him in the Atlantic. Um, but otherwise the headline that I can really remember of the last few weeks is the calls for Matt Lieberman to step aside and let Raphael Warnock sort of be the anointed Democrat in this race, not necessarily because of anything Warnock did, but because of a a racist book that Matt Lieberman wrote years ago. Um, you know, what are y'all's thoughts on on where that other Senate race stands?
3: I've said this from, you know, the jump with this one that I feel like when Leffler was appointed, Collins was totally snubbed. And so I think that we're seeing some of that work itself out with the changing endorsements and um just how kind of all up in each other's grills uh Leffler and Collins are because I really do think that you know, Collins was the obvious choice and Kemp chose Leffler. And, you know, we've seen a couple of reasons as to why Kemp chose Leffler. Mainly, you know, he cites that she's not a politician, you know, that she's a businesswoman or what have you, but Collins paid his dues and earned it. So I think that's the, the big thing there. I think the other thing that I guess I wonder about, um, you know, when you're talking about all the events, Kyle, is whether we are intentionally not hearing about cases of COVID that come out of these events, whether people who get it are intentionally not reporting or are doing their best to make sure that any sort of contact tracing stays kind of like internal. I know this is a little bit conspiracy theorist of me, but given the size of those events and the prevalence of COVID, I can't imagine that somebody has not gotten COVID from these events. And the only explanation for us not hearing about it is that people are
1: being really tight-lipped. Republicans are uh, will do anything to win, including sacrificing Grandma. From my earlier point, um, I, I, I it, it, might there might be some truth to your conspiracy theory, Megan. As, as what I'll say, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that the race between Loeffler, the reason we keep hearing the uh, more stuff about Loeffler and Collins is because um, it's a very spicy race. I mean, they're both going at it, and uh, Collins has gotten some high-profile endorsements. Um, I don't know if Nathan Deal officially endorsed him, but I know he was at a, a Collins event the other day. Um, Ralston's a big get. Uh, and it just, you know, and Brian, Brian can't picked Loeffler because um, from what I understood, he thought that he, it would be good for his reelection and bringing back uh, white suburban voters. And, and it, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. It looks like he just made, like most of his decisions, a poor decision. And as far as, um, hearing from Warnock, um, and Lieberman, I was actually one of the people that, um, publicly said that Lieberman should drop out, um, that I didn't read the whole thing, but I, uh, my friend who's, a, uh, who's the president of the NAACP was highly offended and wrote a long uh, post as to why, um, uh, Lieberman had to immediately step down and it was it, it, that book was just, it did not need to be written. Um, and it was, it just showed that he d- doesn't understand uh, racial uh, tensions or relations in a normal way. Um, and that's not something that I think that we want in a U.S. Senator. Um, and, and as far as uh, Warnock, I'm I'm hoping to hear from, more from him. I, I think he has a lane for himself and he needs to be dominating it. Um, I think he has a great profile. I just feel like his campaign is really quiet and um, I'm hoping that, you know, that hopefully he'll be one of the candidates that makes it out of the, uh, um, it'll, he'll be uh, one of the candidates that makes it into the runoff in January.
0: Yeah. I think the tough thing is that, you know, I think Collins and Leffler are so visible because they are going at each other so hard right now. That dynamic will continue all the way through general election day because they are on the ballot together along with Warnock and the 20 other people in that race. And so there may, you know, there may not be a lot of incentive for Collins or Loeffler to ever really turn their attention to Warnock beyond saying he's, you know, one of Nancy Pelosi's socialist cabal members or whatever they would say. But I just imagine they'll continue to be dismissive as they fight it out over, over Donald Trump's base. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on that Senate race on, on both of those Senate races. We'll keep an eye on the way in which Democrats try to navigate this new normal about campaigning and, and whether or not the environment would allow them to open up more in-person campaign opportunities or whether or not, given the circumstances, they get really good at at digital and, and campaigning on Zoom and, and all of that. But it's an eight-week sprint. We are excited to be spending that with y'all and Nabila and Megan, I am excited that y'all are are here on the podcast to do it with us. Thank you to both of you for joining the show today. You
3: bet. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm excited, too. All
0: right, y'all. We will talk to you next week. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.